has finished at Sunderland. Manchester United have done all they can. That really comes down to a point. They're interested here for the line here. Welcome, Blues, to this very special set of episodes that we've decided to call the Peter Swales Era. Uh, Peter Swales, as you might know, was chairman of Man City from 1973 to 1993 in a two-decade span that saw the coming and going of over a dozen managers. Joining me to make this happen is, first of all, our very own David Gregory. Hi, David. How are you? I'm very well. Good afternoon to you both. Okay. And we've also got Presswich Blue, Colin Savage. Hi, Colin. How are you? I'm fine, thank you, yeah. Well, listeners, by the time you hear this podcast, you'll know the score uh, against uh, Chelsea. But uh, we're on a different topic uh, tonight. We're here to talk about this, well, era, I guess you could say, from 1973 to 1993. But guys, I think you'll agree that before we start, and uh, despite any criticisms, Peter Swales was very much um, a man who loved Manchester City and was desperate to see us put one over on United. I think we could all agree on that. Uh, what would you say, guys? Uh, Colin first? It, that's an interesting point, because actually I saw Gary James about three weeks ago, and I asked him the question, was Peter Swales a Manchester City fan? And Gary couldn't answer that question. He said, I don't know. You know, so I think it was, we'll, we'll talk about it as we go through. His obsession was overtaking United. It's almost the obsession that killed him, if you like, or that, that certainly took us down the path of um, perhaps not do, not achieving as much of our potential as we could have done as a team. And there were times when uh, we were very close to, well, we were or were very close to a long spell as top dog in the city. He came in for a lot of stick, as modern day chairmen do. Well, I know he's not modern now, but you know it, it was a case. And us fans have to share some of the responsibility, not just city fans, lots of clubs. They're perfectly happy to have the club bankrupt to go and spend this money on a player, you know, sign him, sign him, sign him. And I think Peter Swales got a little bit carried away with with things. I think in his heart of hearts, he had City very firmly there. I mean, he, he was involved with Altrincham before coming to, to be involved with City. And that was one of the best-run clubs in the North West when, when he was around. But it's always a difficult one. Football is when businessmen get involved in football, they stop thinking like businessmen. Mm. You know, they wouldn't do the things in their business that they do in football clubs. Yeah. Ask Alan Sugar if he could have his time over. Would he approach it differently? Passion takes over. Guys, when we're uh, we're going to start this saga of Peter Swales, I'm going to ask Colin to kick us off. Colin, where do you think is a good place to start? Well, let's start from the very beginning, as they say in the, uh, as they say in the famous song. I think the first thing to say about Peter Swales is, and and don't wish to speak ill of the dead here, having researched this and having kind of looked at a number of things and tried to cross-check as much as I can, the one thing I've got to say is, if you were relying on Peter Swales as your sole source of information, you've got to be very careful to take perhaps some of the stuff he says with a bit of a pinch of salt. And I'll explain what I mean as I go along. But certainly there are some things where, where it's independently verifiable that he's clearly... To say he lied, he sounds a bit vicious and brutal. 
but he, he clearly w- wasn't quite telling the truth. Now, whether that was to uh, build the image of himself that he wanted people to see or uh, pure memory lapses, but let, let's go through it and um, I, I'll explain what I mean. So what we know about Peter Swales is, and I've got to, before I do this, I've got to give some credits to mainly to Gary James for all the work he's done and the, the help, some of the help he's given me on this. So his his book Manchester the City Years is a the crucial source for this. Oh, it's the Bible, uh, isn't it? The Man City Bible. It's the Bible, yeah, it is. There's another two books, uh, one a recent one by Tim Rich called Caught Beneath the Landslide. Yeah, I just and that's, that. Yeah, that, that covers the 90s. Uh, but obviously it covers the, the Swales era. So some, a lot of the stuff I've got, I've got from there. And also there's another book called, where have I done with it? Blue Moon Rising, which is by Andy Buckley and Richard Burgess. And that sort of covers the same period. So from, you know, the Franny Lee takeover to, um, you know, David Bernstein and, and Joe Royal and, and, and that area. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of good sources on this. So and I, I obviously I want to give them credit. Uh, and David Cons, Richard and God, also covers part of it. So that was quite interesting. But what we know about Peter Swales is he was born actually on Christmas Day, 1932. And he was born in Ardwick, Manchester, not that far from where the ground is now. Uh, his father was a fishmonger. Um, now, a- according to um, Tim Rich in Court Beneath the Landslide, Peter was the first boy from his primary school to get a scholarship to the local Hume Grammar School. Now, again, in light of what I've just said, if that's come from Peter Swales, you might have to treat that with a bit of a pinch of salt. I don't know whether that's true or not. But but if, if it is true, and let's give him the benefit of the doubt, it shows that even at the age of kind of 10, 11, he was a fairly hardworking, bright kid. So he went to grammar school. He left at 16. And his father wanted him to go into an accountancy office. Now, in those days, you did your national service at 18. He would have left school at 16. So he spent probably two years in this accountancy office. But he, he really didn't like it. It wasn't pen pushing. It wasn't really for him. And what saved him was um, his national service. Uh, because everyone in those days was called, uh, everyone in those days was called up for a couple, two, three years. Uh, and so he did his uh, national service in the Royal Army Service Corps down in um, somewhere in Somerset, Taunton or Yeovil, somewhere like that. Now, the story is that um, he showed his entrepreneurial skills um, in that spell. Uh, apparently, according to Tim Rich, uh, the first thing he organised was um, a laundry service for his fellow soldiers, conscripts, where he did the uh, washing and, and ironing, or he got someone else to do it. And, of course, they paid him for it. And the other story is um, he first got into wireless rentals. So he rented a wireless for 10 shillings a week from a local shop. And he charged the 20 people in his um, barracks, in, in the dormitory, in the barracks, a shilling a week. I think we'll have to, to remind younger viewers what a, what a wireless is. <laughs> a radio. So obviously, so he was renting this for 10 shillings a week and charging 20 shillings a week, apparently. So again, you know, it's evidence of his entrepreneurial mind. Uh, apparently, he left national service as a sergeant, which going in as a conscript is probably quite a good thing. I don't know much about it, but... Um, I would say it, that's it, unrealistic. It sounds unrealistic, doesn't it? Yeah. And yeah. again, it comes back to this theme of, do you believe what Peter Swales said? I, I don't know whether Tim Rich verified his source or he got it maybe from Gary James or, or somewhere else, but it sounds unrealistic. But if it was true, again, it shows a guy who was hardworking, bright, capable, uh, a leader. It, it sounds a bit odd to me, but I'm, I'm not sure. I don't know. Whatever happened, National Service saved him from a life in accountancy, which he didn't like. And he went into business, came out the um, army, went into business with his pal, Noel White. And they had a little 
unit in Altrincham selling sheet music and instruments, I believe, or renting out instruments. Now, of course, in those days, for those of our younger listeners, you wonder how can you make a living selling sheet music? But in the days before we had even record players, you know, we're going back to the 90, very early 1950s, record players were a bit of a novelty. There wasn't the amount of pre-recorded music around that, that we have today. There's certainly no Spotify or Deezer or uh, any of these streaming services and no CDs. So, so people tended to, the music that people tended to play and listen to was on the piano at home. And sheet music was a huge thing, um, very lucrative business to be in. So, so Peter and Noel White apparently they put in 50 quid each uh, and the shop cost them six quid a, a week or six quid a month rent. And they did very well out of this. And, and, and they diversified that into electrical goods, t- TVs and radios. And again, in those days, most people rented the TV. You didn't buy a TV. You, you, you paid you know, whatever it was a week to rent the TV. And again, we're probably talking about mid to late 50s when TV was really starting to take off as a medium. So it was a very, very good time to be in that sort of thing. Everyone wanted TVs. Everyone wanted radios. And eventually they ended up with um, 130 shops. Swales and White, very well-known brand, 130 shops across the whole Northwest. They were bought out by Thorny MI, apparently for about uh, £500,000. I think that was in the very early 70s. So what that would be worth now, I'm not sure. Probably well in the millions. So, you know, with probably 35, 40 million, maybe more. So obviously at that point, him and Noel White were well off. So if you think kind of John Wardle type well off, uh, you know, tens of millions rather than hundreds or billions. But you know, it's still nice, very, very comfortable. Uh, uh, Peter's actually stayed on to manage the chain of shops. I'm not sure what Noel White did, but Peter stayed on to manage the chain of shops. So presumably he was doing quite well out of that as well. And this is where, and I say, as we, as we were saying before, there's, there's no real evidence at that point he was a, a diehard City fan. But of course, running a chain of shops, which would have been open Saturday afternoon, when games were on Saturday afternoon, probably if he was, he wouldn't have been going to games. There's no hard evidence that he was a City fan in those days. What did get him involved in football, and I was very fortunate uh, to hear this story firsthand, actually. It involved a guy called Brian Lomax. Uh, Brian died a couple of years ago, unfortunately. Brian was known as the father of the Supporters Trust movement. Uh, uh, and I spoke to Brian back in 2006 when we were looking at setting up a supporters trust at City. And I was actually, uh, Brian lived down in uh, Daventry near Northampton. And I was working and, and living down in Northampton at the time. So it was a fairly obvious connection to make. So uh, supporters direct gave me his contact details and I, I spoke to Brian. He was very, very helpful. But the first thing he said to me was when I told him I was a Manchester City fan, he said, I've got to say something to you before we carry on. And you might want to put the phone down on me when I tell you this. But what the hell is he going to tell me? And he said, I've got to apologise, but I was the man who got Peter Swales involved in football. And he told me the story. He was a, Brian was actually from Altrincham and he was a big Altrincham fan. Altrincham were just an amateur club uh, and struggling quite badly. They were badly in need of finance. Brian um, would have been in his teens, late teens at the time, sixth form. 16, 17, he used to follow the team all over the Northwest and he'd go on his bike. You're talking about times he was the only away fan at some of these <laughs> you know, Northwest Northwest League amateur games. And eventually they got to hear about it at Altrincham and they invited him onto the team bus for the games. So Brian sort of got a little bit involved and he uh, made it his mission to get some help for Altrincham. So he canvassed, he wrote to 
uh, a lot of local businesses to see what they could do. And obviously caught uh, Peter Swales and Noel White at a good time because they had a lot of money in their pockets. And I suspect they were looking for a, a, a new challenge, having sold out to Thorne AMI. So they both got involved in Altrincham. Not only did they put money in, I think they both got actively involved in the club. And again, you know, we can put some credence on this story because A, it's been verified, and B, we know that there's plenty of um, uh, documentary evidence out there that they got heavily involved in Altrincham. So, so again, you look at, a, look at a man who... He wasn't prepared just to put the money in and stand back, but he was actually prepared to get heavily involved. And, and they did turn Altrincham's fortunes around. And a couple of times, Altrincham had been on the verge of getting into the, the, the Football League. And, and something has gone, I think one time, the ground wasn't quite ready and, and oh, they've not managed to get, in the days when it was re-election rather than automatic promotion, they've not quite managed to get that. But they did a fantastic job in getting Altrincham up to where they got them to. So obviously they had a talent for football administration, both of them. And I think at this point, Peter Swales actually started to get involved in the FA. So uh, sometime around this time, he, he started to get heavily involved in the FA. So, so obviously he's got a bit of a name around the Northwest now. And, and that kind of brings us to City. So in um, obviously we had our very successful era, late 60s, very early 70s, with Joe Mercer, Malcolm Allison. But there was a problem behind the scenes. And I don't want to go into this in detail has been covered on other podcasts but uh, Malcolm Allison was kind of chafing at the bit a little him and Joe had a good partnership and Malcolm failed to recognize I think that it was the partnership that worked it, it was two great individuals but the whole was greater than the sum of the parts Malcolm wanted the top job there's some evidence that Joe had promised him the top job but Joe was a little bit reluctant to stand aside now, all this is sort of going on behind the scenes. So as a City fan, I'm not sure, David, whether you were ever aware of any of this, but I don't think I was particularly until it started to hit the papers a little. Yeah, on, only as it hit the papers. I mean, yeah, we'd, yeah. You, again, this is pre-even um, match of the day. Yeah. So you, you, weren't, you weren't actually, other than Manchester Evening News, and you weren't getting any sort of feedback and any, any idea what was going on. But... Yeah, it's. Uh, we know from what Malcolm himself had said. You know, if you felt he was being held back and he was never going to truly achieve his potential, or cities, if that was the case, and he was held back. Yeah. So the family who basically controlled Manchester City were a family called the Alexander family. So the, the third generation was uh, involved with City at that point. And the chairman was a guy known as young Albert Alexander. His father was also Albert Alexander. They'd been involved in City for many years. Uh, so young Albert and his son Eric, they owned nearly 600 shares between them. Now, at the time, City wasn't a quoted company. It was a private company. There were about 2,000 shares in total. But it, it was believed about 300 of those were missing. So people had had shares and died. And, and the vast majority of shareholders had one to 10 shares at the most. Having nearly 600 shares out of a probable 1,700 didn't need much. You were basically in control of the club, effectively. The other big shareholder was a guy called Frank Johnson. Uh, he had uh, 520 shares. What happened was that Malcolm persuaded Frank Johnson or... He persuaded one of the other city directors to find a buyer for the Frank Johnson shares because basically he felt Malcolm liked Albert Alexander. He thought he was a good chairman, but he thought the rest of the board were a bit old fashioned and stayed and, and weren't capable of driving the club forward in the way that Malcolm saw it. So Malcolm persuaded Frank Johnson to sell his shares 
or, or someone persuaded Frank Johnson to sh sell his shares to a man called Joe Smith. And Joe Smith was one of the early double glazing millionaires. So he'd made a fortune in, in double glazing and a, a few other businesses. And he was doing a private deal with Frank Johnson to, to buy the majority of Johnson's shares. And he was also backed by a number of other people, uh, existing shareholders, who could well have swung the balance against the Alexander family. So when uh, Albert Alexander found out that there was a big boardroom battle, and, and not only was it in the boardroom, the battle spilled over it on, into the um, on-field arena because the players um, saw it as Malcolm being disloyal. So that's kind of gives you a, a flavour of what's going on behind the scenes. So you've got one faction who wants to buy in. Albert Alexander was a very stormy board meeting at which Frank Johnson was persuaded not to sell his shares for the time being. But it was a very fractious situation in the boardroom. So basically, there were two factions in the boardroom. There was the Alexander family. There was the ones backing Joe Smith, who wanted to buy Frank Johnson's shares. And there was this huge boardroom split, which was impacting things on the field. It's a time when, yeah, late 60s, early 70s, we could have gone on to dominate for a long, long time. If we'd all been together, everyone had been working together you know, from, from the top board down to the uh, managers and players. So there was a bit of a standoff. This is one of the instances where the Peter Swales version of events is not necessarily supported by anyone else's version of events. So the way Peter Swales described it was that he was in a pub in Hale one evening and he saw two city directors, Sidney Rose and John Humphreys. And the Humphreys family owned Umbro. If you can see the connection, you take the H out of Humphreys, U.M., Bro, I think they were, they were brothers. So Humphreys brothers were the Umbro owners. So John Humphreys and, and Sidney Rose were talking in this pub. And according to Peter Swells, he went, he saw them, went over and said, I've heard about the problems you're having in the boardroom. I can sort them out. When you, when you talk to the other people, I, again, I was lucky enough. I knew Sidney Rose quite well in his later years. And Sidney was sh sharp as a pin. And I asked Sidney about this story. And Sidney said, I don't remember exactly how we got Peter Swales involved. He said, but I can tell you that's rubbish. That story did not happen. So, again, you've got Peter spinning a bit of a tale, which makes him look, you know, a bit of a Jack the Lad. And in Eric Alexander's autobiography, so, so the third generation of the Alexander family, Eric supports, basically supports Sydney's version of events uh, in, in that that story did not happen about the pub. Uh, and they believe that, that they got Peter, City got Peter Swales involved, or his father got Peter Swales involved to try and act as a peacemaker. Because if you look at Swales, he'd been a successful businessman, self-made man, involved in football, was on the fringes of the F. I think he was on the FA Council at that point. I'm not sure. So, you know, you've got a man who's got, you know, the, the business sense, the money, the nous, the, the football background. And, and you can see it from that point of view as, as Swale being an obvious candidate to come in and try and sort things out. Well, he, he was the stalemate. He, he was the one that could have a foot in both camps. Yes. And he yes. wasn't wasn't aligned to any particular faction. So rather than have a boardroom split, the view was that Peter Swales could actually heal those divisions. And I mean, Joe Smith was was very, very pro Malcolm Allison. Uh, whereas Swales didn't have an opinion at that at that particular time. I, I think that's, that's absolutely right. Swales was the peacemaker. He, he, he didn't have a side. So you've got the Al Alexanders backing Mercer. You've got Joe Smith and his faction on the board. And I think Joe Smith had got hold of the shares at this point. So, so Joe Smith had got most of Frank Johnson's shares. So Joe Smith, I think, has got something like 500 out of these 1,700 active shares. So say, as, as David rightly says, Peter was the... The honest broker. 
and apparently spent a lot of time talking to Joe Smith and his faction, and he spent a lot of time talking to the Alexander faction, and they hammered out a peace deal. But this took a couple, basically took a couple of years. Swales came on the board, I think, in seventy one. Yep, yep. It became a director in April nineteen seventy one. Joe Smith and his faction, which included Simon Cousins, who was of the soap making family, Cousins, Imperial Patterson Deconis, they now are. Ian Niven and Chris Muir were among the uh, Smith faction. Now, again, another interesting piece of Peter Swales not quite telling it like it is. Peter did an interview with Gary James not long before he died. Uh, The last interview he did before he died. Uh, And he said as part of that interview that uh, he came on the board, but he only had a handful of shares. And he didn't get a significant number of shares until the late 1980s. (laughs) And this is completely false because... I've looked on Company's House, and the earliest accounts on Company's House for City are for the year ending 1975. So Swales already is chairman at that point, and they also have um, minutes of the shareholders' AGM in 1974, October 1974. And as part of that list, there was a typewritten list of which shareholders were present and how many shares they had. So at the time of the 1974 AGM, Peter Swales was listed as having 490 shares which is somewhat more than the handful he claimed to have for the next 15 years or whatever. So this this Peter Swales, this, again, it's this image of he's trying to build of Peter Swales, the honest broker, doesn't have any boardroom power via shares. But in fact, if that's true, well, it, it must be true because it's typed out in the AGM minutes. He's basically got 20% of the active shares, over 20% of the active shares. I think it's even more than that, actually, it's 490. So he is the dominant figure on the city board in terms of shareholding. So so just to recap, he's on the board in 71. And I suspect as part of this deal that was hammered out, it was agreed that Albert Alexander would stand down as chairman and his son, Eric, would take his place temporarily. All about the same time, Malcolm Allison then takes charge of the team for the first time properly in late 1971. Peter Swales is on the board. Soon afterwards... Uh, young Albert is made life president. Eric Alexander becomes chairman. Uh, Peter Swales becomes vice chairman. Now, at that point, Joe Smith may have had the power. June 1972, Joe Mercer finally leaves for Coventry. And then in, in March 1973, Malcolm Allison leaves uh, and Johnny Hart takes over as manager. And, and at this point, that's why Peter Swales gets elected to the FA Council around the same time. So, so this whole kind of 71 period, Peter Swales is building up his power. But whether he's there because of Joe Smith's shares, we can't, can't quite work out at this point. What we do know is when we kind of get to 1974, which I was saying earlier, the, the power is very much in Peter Swales' hands. And in 1973, at the beginning of the 73-74 season, Eric Alexander announces that he would be standing down as chairman at the AGM in, later in that year, 1973. And, and what um, Eric Alexander, the chairman, outgoing chairman, says, very interesting to read is, The boardroom is now totally democratic. And he quotes Neville Chamberlain. We've now got peace in our time. Obviously referring to the boardroom Mm. ructions that have been going on for the last three years. And this one really gets me. Eric Alexander says, no one man will ever control Manchester City. (laughs) So that doesn't last long. So what we've now got is Peter Swales is chairman and Simon Cousins, uh, who's uh, one of Joe Smith's backers, uh, and obviously from a wealthy family, is um, vice chairman. Joe Smith sort of floats in and out the picture, really. Sometimes he's on the board, sometimes he's not on the board. 
think he might have died or, or, or something quite soon afterwards. I, I'm not quite sure. But Joe Smith is, is probably the major shareholder at this time. He's 73. Joe Smith wrote an article or, or in the programme or something or spoke at the AGM. And Joe Smith said a monopoly of power was in existence, talking about the Alexander family, which you hardly seem to have been. They'd certainly had the power, but you wouldn't say it was a monopoly. And then his quote was, the chairmanship passed into the astute care of the best person at present equipped to do the job. There could be no better choice than Peter J. Swales. Eric Alexander, one of the Islanders, said that the club had been very profitable for many years. And in fact, in 1973, was our biggest ever profit in, in our history. So the club had been very, very well run, carefully run up to that point. And it was a very profitable club. Now, at this time, Peter's saying Joe Smith was the boss. He bought the bulk of the shares, but he didn't have the bottle to do the job. And of course, Peter definitely had the bottle to do the chairman's job. So if we go back to this if we go back to the shares and we kind of go go forward to say 1974, Peter Swales has been in power a year. At that 1974 AGM, Peter Swales has got 490 shares. You've got people like Simon Cousins has got 300. Eric Alexander's got 366. Other directors have got 120. Peter Swales has bought most of the shares off Joe Smith at this point. So, so Peter's, again, we get back to Peter's story that he was just a small shareholder. Joe, he, he ruled at Joe Smith's, with Joe Smith's permission. It's complete nonsense because Peter now is the power in the boardroom. So even two years later, you know, this, this no one man will ever have power at City again. It's gone completely out the window. Peter now has the power and he doesn't, he, yeah, he may need to rely maybe on the people like Simon Cousins, but he's got them. They're his people now, whatever they were before. Yeah. Yeah, Joe, Joe Smith had, Joe Smith had put his faith in Malcolm Allison. And when Malcolm Allison walked out of the club in March 73, when he decided that, you know, his brighter light suited him, that took a lot of the gloss away from what Joe Smith was trying to do. Yeah. And he was a little bit disillusioned by this. And I think that's the point where he decided to offload a lot of his shares and reduce his involvement and interest. And Swales, ever the opportunist, saw his, opp saw his chance to, to take on. It's always interesting when somebody's leaving a job, what they say really carries no weight at all because you're not any, in a position any longer to control it. So for, for Eric Alexander to say no man will ever do this again, that's that's more wishful thinking than because they've, they've no control. They've, they've relinquished the control. And Peter Swales, no matter what everybody, anybody says, was always a man for the main chance. He saw yes. an opportunity and he took it. And you, you yeah. can't hold that against him. Some of his decisions are very questionable, but he, he was not responsible directly for the first Malcolm Allison outing. He was definitely responsible for the second disastrous mm. one. But <laughs> the club at the time treated Joe Mercer abysmally. In, yes. in you know sending Joe Mercer on his way, and it was only in in you know much latter years after the chap had passed away when his wife was invited back to the club, um, and those those wounds uh, were sort of partially healed but there was a period i mean the, there was a time when it, everything everything had to go anything old had to go this this had to go and that had to go and they were chucking stuff away from the out of the boardrooms and stuff it just you know it, it's like new broom in, in for peter swells i'm the new broom i'm sweeping clean absolutely and i think um at that time you know 70 71 72 had the board been united then they would have found a solution to the joe mercer problem but Again, to, to, to support what David said, because of the two factions, one wanted Joe Mercer out, out the picture completely and Malcolm to have the reins. And there was the, the old guard 
who wanted to find a solution, but they couldn't agree. So, you know, Eric Alexander as chairman and Albert as life vice president wanted to keep Joe Mercer. And, and there was no doubt a way to do it. Some of the fault you could lay at Joe Mercer's door, because if he said, OK, I'm going to stand aside, but he could have found still found a way of working with Malcolm, you know, as a, a shoulder to, to cry on or, or, you know, just a source of advice without being uh, in 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 the hierarchy, in the chain of command, mm. then things could have been different. But again, it comes back to this boardroom factions caused the problem. I think what, what got to Malcolm was when Joe Mercer came back as general manager of Coventry and he got a phenomenal reception. And I think that just completely dispirited Malcolm to a large degree. But yeah, so so I think David's absolutely right. Uh, we may have had a, a kind of an interregnum period, 71 to 73 while, while Malcolm was there and trying to build something. But once that ended, Peter Swales was uh, very much the man in charge. So so his 490 shares he had at the 1974 AGM would have given him just under 30% of the active shares. So, so that made him invulnerable, basically, unless every single shareholder voted against him. Uh, and certainly with his allies, they had the majority of the shares. I'd love to know, say, when Joe Smith walked away with Mark got, got disillusioned, it'd be interesting to see how Peter got the what the old uh, Smith faction, Simon Cousins particularly, who had a large group of shares, how he got them on side. Because they then became, they almost became his men. And, and then he was in a, yeah, all these things we were told about monopolies and no one person having the complete power, that all changed by 1974. Uh, and we had, and Peter Swales had seen his chance. And Davy said he'd taken it, uh, and from then on, he couldn't be touched. Yeah, you would also you, you comment we we started off with in in twenty years he went through eleven managers. His first two both gave it up because they were ill, Johnny Hart and Ron Saunders, um, and they were followed by Tony Book, who, who Tony Book had a very very successful period. So you run it forward to to sort of late. Late seventy eight, seventy nine season, we were actually doing quite well. Oh, yeah. uh, and, and that, yeah. and that's that's with Peter Swales in the chair uh, and Tony Book managing. So it, it's not, you know, it's quite often we, we all change over years. And in twenty years, you know, you, I look back at myself twenty years ago, I'm a lot different individual now. And the sad thing about life is power, and power can corrupt. And you get to the position where you know you're the boss. Nobody's challenging you. Your decisions are all going to be right because you're making them. Um, yeah. and, and that's where things went horribly wrong for the club, particularly, you know, again, the uh, get rid of Tony Book, most successful manager since the, the Joe Mercer era, and replace him with Malcolm Allison. You think, well, what on earth are you doing? And, and that I mean, was the start of the disillusionment because up to then, you know, as as a club, we weren't doing too badly. He was he'd become not started out, but become obsessed with being better than Manchester United. And when United went down in 1974, he was distraught when they bounced straight back, uh, more powerful than ever in in many ways. And and that was where you know, he was hoping they would have a long stay in the lower division. Um, the, the clubs in the lower division couldn't cope with it. The police in every small town was were overrun with United supporters rocking up. And that was that. You know, the Joe Mercer return of Joe Mercer was that obsession to to actually make those changes that he felt genuinely felt would make the difference. Well, they did make a difference, but not the way he thought. Yeah, I mean, 
we'll perhaps we'll talk through those first few seasons for the, for the next few minutes. But I mean, that's absolutely right. There was a point, particularly in those early seventies, and even in the in the mid seventies, where a bit of careful planning, a bit of forward planning, a five year plan, doing things gradually. You know, not making any big changes would have seen cities cement their dominance, probably. And, and yet, but but we lost it at a time when the money started coming into the game, and, and we were chasing the game all the time. But, I mean, shall we talk through kind of the start of the Peter Swells as chairman era and, and Johnny Hart, Ron Saunders, because that's mm-hmm. kind of where yeah. things started, really. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I yeah. think, so um, obviously Malcolm had gone. Being the the top dog wasn't all it was cracked up to be, and so Johnny Hart was his number two and in some ways Malcolm was a number two and everyone said Malcolm wasn't really suited to being a manager that's what everybody says isn't it so, that yeah, he was, yeah, he yeah, was yeah. well ahead of his time in coaching but his his man management was was somewhat iffy he had his favorites and he also had players that he didn't like whereas Joe Joe could put his arm around yeah. people and, and talk them down and that was the big difference that you you didn't have a dressing room unrest with Joe Mercer and my dad always told a tale that somebody went in asking for you know a rise, and Joe said, "Well, if I give you more money, I'm going to have to give him more money, and if I give him more money, I'm going to have to go and give him more money, and then they'll all want more money." You know, and let's face it, son. You know, where does it all end? Oh, sorry to have asked, <laughs> boss, and how it goes. Yeah. <laughs> so it wasn't say Johnny Hart. The club kind of made a second mistake in some way, but Johnny Hart was a lovely man, quite gentle man. Uh, a number two again he was a number two and that was what all the players loved him all the staff loved him but he found it stressful being in the manager's hot seat for for perhaps different reasons to Malcolm Allison and it was giving him health problems whether he suffered a stroke but he he was certainly depressed and very much stress related so Swales has then got to make his first decision as chairman Johnny Hart resigned at the beginning I think of November 1973 so Swales has been in the chair uh, well, just a month, effectively, uh, at this point. So it's his first big decision as chairman. Uh, and he looked around and he wanted a, you know, a, an upcoming successful manager who, who, who was sure of himself. Because I think, I think he'd seen the problems of Johnny Hart. You want, a, you want someone who knows he's comfortable in the hot seat. And the up-and-coming guy uh, at the time was uh, Ron Saunders, who was manager of Norwich. And he'd taken these unfashionable Norwich to the League Cup uh, the previous season. And um, very out-there character very assertive character, seemed a good manager, good tactician. And so Norwich were actually happy to let him go. The Norwich chairman is reported as saying, well, you know, we're very happy for Ron. It's a big opportunity to go to a club like Manchester City. Because we were one of the top clubs in those days. We know even Manchester United's star was waning a little bit. We were one of the top three clubs, no doubt about it. So managing Manchester City was a big, big opportunity. So we got Ron Saunders and Peter Swales made the first of his kind of gaffed public pronouncements. And he said, I pledge my reputation with Ron Saunders. I have gambled my future with him and I will be proved right. If he goes down, I go with him. It's as blunt as that. Didn't turn out that way. (laughs) It didn't quite turn out. But it did look a good appointment at the time. I don't know if, again, David wants to say anything, but but the appointment of Ron Saunders was a good appointment. I think we saw it was a good appointment. Yeah, it was a shock to a lot of the players because Ron Saunders came in with an iron fist. Whereas in Johnny Hart, it, and, and in, for a long time with Joe, it was a glove. Um, so he, he brought some discipline uh, and a little bit too much discipline for some of the players who 
were, were you know enjoying life and doing very well by us i mean his reign didn't his reign wasn't a particularly long one and it's very difficult to say because he did go on um and do very well at aston villa but he was he he almost a nervous breakdown i believe um which city can do that to people as we know um, yeah. <laughs> does it does it to the fans let alone the managers yeah <laughs> but yeah what david says you're right but initially things were quite good under saunders i mean we didn't, didn't i don't think we we're doing particularly well in the league i'm just trying to check but he was a disciplinarian and i think possibly he'd come in from a, a small provincial club norwich not to be disrespectful that's what they were to a big club uh, you know um, and, and I think he felt that he had to get on top of the job quite quickly. Whereas Joe Mercer liked the players to play with a smile on the face. And, and Malcolm, they always had a good time under Malcolm. But Ron was a bit of a sergeant major type. Uh, but but he did look a good appointment at the time. Uh, and we got to the League Cup final, of course, in 1974. So, so, so Ron Saunders has come in late November 73. And March 1974, we're at Wembley playing Wolves. And... Um, Peter Swales kind of summed it up as saying, he said, I've only been in the job for a few months and I'm sat in the Royal Box at Wembley. This job's a doddle. We're going to win everything. And you could see it from, from Peter's point of view that you know, he, he thinks he's got the right man in. We're, we're winning the league. Well, he thinks we're going to win the League Cup because we should have beaten Wolves. And it's looking fantastic for him. But the problem was, um, Saunders was having an impact on the players and, and it's as true people talk about the attitude of players now compared to them but it's as true then as it is now if you lose the, if you lost the dressing room you'd lost the club and um, I remember Mike Doyle talking about the, the build-up to the League Cup final at Wembley and he said if it had been Joe and Malcolm it would have been a happy atmosphere we'd have been jolly joking you, you know you had a, a glass of wine with your dinner in the evening or a beer you know there would have been no discipline no disciplinarian type things like that. You know, you'd expect you to behave yourself, but you'd be doing things with a smile on your face, with a laugh, being giving you that confidence, that arrogance to go and win the game. He said, we didn't have proper training facilities. We're only allowed orange juice. It was all a bit tense. And, and he said, and that affected us as part of the game. We lost to Wolves. And um, and I travelled down. Fully, I, I was at university in Scotland in Dundee at that time. And I travelled down on the Friday night. So I got a lift down on the Friday night. Had Saturday. Uh, travelled down to. I think it was on the Saturday. The game. Travelled down to Wembley on the Saturday. Back home on the Saturday night. Uh, Sunday at home. Then back up to Dundee on the Monday. And as I got the tra- off the train in Dundee, the first person I bumped into that I knew uh, was a Wolves fan. So you know that just kind of after something like a thousand mile round trip. Yeah, I was still in the Navy at that time, so we'd we'd come up, friend and I had come up from Portsmouth and we're staying in the uh, Forces Club overnight in London. And coming away from the ground at the end of the game, there was this young kid, probably 17, 18, he said, are you going to wait for the Woolies to come out? Are you gonna have, and we'll have a rock. I said, don't be silly. I said, in another 15 minutes, there's going to be 30,000 other buggers coming through here. I said, I'll be long gone. <laughs> I don't know if he stood there for any longer after we'd left him. But no, that was a, that was a shocking game. And we, we'd we gone there with so much confidence to yeah. be, in, in many ways, outthought. Yeah, it was a classic example, wasn't it? I was at that game. Classic example of a, a team that maybe didn't have the quality that we had, although they were, de- they were a decent team, just worked harder, wanted it yeah. more. Yeah. We, it was another Wigan-type scenario, wasn't it, really? Mm, yeah, yeah. And uh, it was very disappointing. And we weren't doing that well in the league either. Saunders seemed to want particularly to stamp his authority on the older players. And obviously the older players are the more influential ones in the dressing room. So instead of getting them on side, he was alienating them. And that, that kind of feeds down, 
feeds down to the players. And, and it kind of echoes the Mancini era to a great degree where, mm-hmm. you know, Mancini was hacking the players off. And you don't give your best for a man who is hacking you off because you've got to get into, not only, you, as a manager, you've got to get into players' heads. You've got to make them yeah. want to run through a brick wall. And they didn't want to do that. And by Easter, we were just, it was the first season, 73-74, was the first season of uh, three up, three down. Our league form wasn't good. And by Easter, we were actually in 16th place and there were 22 in the league at that point. But we were just five points above the bottom three. It, it, it's a bit nerve-wracking. And, and Peter Swales told the story that he was a bit nervous and he went to see Joe Smith. And Joe Smith said, you do what you want. You know, you do what you think is right, Peter. Now, again, early example of perhaps Peter Swales' classic deflection tactic, uh, which we'll talk about again and, and again. So Peter decided on Joe Smith's advice, he was going to sack Ron Saunders. And uh, he, he did it over the Easter week. He did it on a good Friday. And of course, there were no papers in those days. So so the news took a few days to come out. And, and apparently, according to uh, according to Swales or, or, or Ron Saunders, I'm not sure who told this story. Peter Swell called Ron Saunders in and said, I'm sacking you. And Saunders was staggered because he said, I've got you to a League Cup final. He said, all right, we're not doing that well in the league, but I guarantee you we're not going down, uh, which, which was a bit of a strange guarantee. We've heard those sort of things before. But Peter said, I can't take the chance. And he sacked him. And Ron Saunders was quite annoyed about this because he genuinely thought uh, Swales had no grounds to sack him. So he was sacked over the Easter weekend, 1974, and um, Tony Book was given the job. Uh, which was the best thing that, that he could have done. Because obviously Tony, Tony was one of the guys who had obviously had the respect of the players because he'd been the captain. But also he had a bit of an iron fist in a velvet glove. Um, and he could give out bollockings um, if needed. So he had the right, he had the respect of the players because they played with him. But he could also stand back and deal with them as a manager. So, so that was almost the ideal, um, perfect scenario. And of course, the other thing that happened in the 1973-1974 season was, of course, our final game was at Old Trafford. And United had to win to stand any chance of avoiding relegation. Although it's often said that Dennis Law backheel goal relegated them. But they were going down anyway because the results, as we'll see in 1919, no, it wasn't 1998, when we were um, going down to League Division 3, League League 2 or what League 1 as it is now, yeah. uh, the results just went against, against them. But of course, again, it's, you know, it's it's almost like just under 10 years on from 1966 when Mercer and Allison came in. We're on the verge of another golden era. You know, we've got a manager who combines the best bits of Mercer and Allison. United are out of the picture. They're down in Division 2. We're getting a good team together. Dennis Stewart's come in during that season. One of the great things that Ron Saunders did was sign Dennis Stewart, who went on to obviously become a legend for us. So at the end of that 74 season, things couldn't have, couldn't have been better as a City fan. We've that got- last match against United, we were setting sail for the, a tour of the West Indies. And we, we'd, we'd actually pulled out of Portsmouth Harbour, but anchored in the sort of near the Isle of Wight before we set sail first thing in the morning. So we could only listen to it on the world service. And I thought, typical, I'm stuck on a ship, nowhere near a phone. <laughs> All those United <laughs> fans that I want to ring and I can't. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, I was at, I was at that game again. I was, I've come home from university for that game and I was dead ill. As, as I was coming down on the train from Dundee, I started feeling really poorly and actually came down with flu. Really shouldn't have gone to the game, but I did. I, I was ill for a couple of weeks afterwards, actually. If, if I remember rightly, we were stood up in the what they call the main stand paddock, because in those days, Old Trafford, you had kind of had seats, and at the front of each stand, uh, apart from the Stretford end, which was all standing, there's had a standing paddock area. There was no segregation in those days, so you could get tickets anywhere. My dad, my brother, and I were, were stood in the, the main stand paddock, 
opposite that penalty area where Dennis scored. And in those days, a derby match away game was always a bit of a frightening experience, um, fan-wise. But of course, when, when Dennis Law scored, there was a pitch invasion. United fans trying to get the um, game called off. And uh, it looked like there's going to be serious outbreak of trouble. And the police basically got the City fans. I, re- I remember this copper saying to us, he said, if I were you, I'd get out now. We said, well, we can still hold the, hold the line, basically. <laughs> so we got the train. We parked the car in town, got the train out from Oxford Road to Old Trafford. Uh, and remember being still on the platform, the police holding back, baying United fans. Uh, you know, they'd have thrown us, they'd have ripped us limb from limb if they got hold of us. I mean, get, getting off the train at, all, uh, at to Oxford Road. And we still legged it back to the car. But, you know, you never knew what the hell was coming behind us. But, yeah, but that, say, that was the... Everything looks so good as a City fan. Tony Book's our manager. A very, very popular choice, of course. United are down in the in the lower leagues. Ah, yeah, what could possibly go wrong? Yeah, a lot of people say t- Dennis Law never intended to score that goal, but he did. You know, he he, he was a definite. I mean, he was back heel, but he wasn't trying to get out of the way. His foot definitely moved towards that ball to put it over the oh, line yeah. because that. You know, he was playing for City in those days. And it's a piece in, in Dennis Law's um, memory banks. That season never existed. United had got rid of him on a free transfer. We we took him to Main Road and gave him not just not, you know, a trip to Wembley, um, a, a last year at the top. Uh, but what, what recognition do we get for that? Absolutely none in his eyes. I heard a story that um, you've always got to be careful about public pronouncements, excuse me, from footballers. I heard a story that Law was um, very bitter about the way United had treated him. And as much as it pained him to score against his old club in that way, in those circumstances, he, he was part of him, felt it was two fingers up to the United board. Yeah. Well, that that bitterness soon passed. You know, you you, you talk him. You know, he's, he doesn't do a lot of TV, to be fair. But whenever he's on TV, it's all United, United, United. Yeah. yeah. You know, forget the club, forget the club that started him off in his career, buying him from Huddersfield, or the club that gave him a decent end to his Although, career. Although, to be fair, we didn't build a statue for him. <laughs> I think that's, possi- that's possibly got something to do with it. Well, mm-hmm. well, perhaps we should build a statue of him backheeling the goal into the United <laughs> Nets. But yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Um, so if you know, if you sat in Peter Swale's seat at that point, you know your hated enemy has been vanquished, and, and, and there are some parallels to today, of course, because um, it was post Busby. So United were going through managers like we were going to go through them in the next few years, uh, and none of them were successful. You know, Franco Farrell and Dave Sexton and Wilf McGuinness and uh, you know, all those people, none of whom could could even uh, begin to um, walk in Busby's footsteps as much as uh, they wanted to. And um, in the same way that, you know, David Moyes, uh, Louis van Gaal and uh, Mourinho are struggling to work in, walk in Ferguson's footsteps, although at the moment, anyway, at least United don't yeah, but you, to be you con- contrast, Yeah, contrast the names, the sizes of car- yeah. and the career achievements of those people. You know, Louis van Gaal, Jose Mourinho, I mean, they... David Moyes had done very well at Everton, fair dues, but he hadn't won anything. But the other two, Wolf McGuinness and Franco Farrell, were not seasoned managers like Van Gaal and Mourinho. No, no, no. So, so, so the, the you know the the damage and the, the is even greater when you take the personalities and the the power of those personalities into consideration. Yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. But you know, if you sat. So, you know, if you sat in Caldunama Barracks seat at the moment, you're probably looking at very much the same picture. 
aren't you, that Peter Swales was looking at. He'd been to Wembley. Mm. He turned the team to Wembley, all right. They'd been disappointed. They hadn't won. We weren't doing great in the league, but that was an era where you could finish top one year and finish 15th the, the next season. It, there wasn't the consistency that, that you tend to get these days. So, you know, he's been to take the team to Wembley. Everything's looking good. And all right, he made a bit of a mistake with Ron Saunders, but he's got the right manager in now. He's, you know, our crosstown rivals have been vanquished again to Division Two. Uh, and everything's looking good. Mm. Uh, Can I just run you through the top scorers in the first six years of his time? Yeah, 1973, cool. 72-73, so Rodney Marsh with 19. 74, Francis Lee with 18. 75, Colin Bell with 18. 76, Dennis Stewart with 24. 77 and 78, both Brian Kidd with 23 and 20, respectively. Now, those goals, I mean, we weren't getting the goals from midfield, admittedly, but when you look at those names and those goal-scoring feats, that's that's not a sign of a poor club. No, 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 no. We were, we were on the verge of being a great club. And, and, yeah. and, and for a few years, we, we were up there. And, and, to, and, be and fair, to be fair to Peter Swales, that's in... In his on his watch on his watch yeah 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 and yeah. we had a great team if you look at the the seventy four seventy five team you're looking at Willie Donicky Mike Doyle Tommy Booth Alan Oakes Mike Summerby Colin Bell Marsh Asa Hartford Dennis Stewart some of the youngsters are starting Joe Royal came in seventy four seventy five season some of the youngsters Gimpardos uh, uh, was injured at that point but Peter Barnes Jed Keegan these players are starting to to break through. So it's a great era. You know, we've got a great mix of experience, young players, flair, uh, and we've got a manager, Tony Buck, who's prepared to let them have their head. Yeah. So, uh, but things kind of, the 74-75 season was a bit of a funny one. And, and perhaps it, if it had happened maybe a few seasons later, Peter Swales might have been a bit quicker to react. But, but fortunately, he wasn't. Uh, and again, at the beginning of that season, Dennis Law decided to retire. I think he played a game for us. Uh, and he scored, but I don't think he played a full season game. So he played a pre-season game, but he didn't play a league game for us. And then bizarrely, Franny Lee was sold to Derby County, which I, I've never really got to a story behind that. But um, Lee was still very much in the prime of his career. He still had a good two, I think, still had a good two or three years left to give. Uh, and I think Mike Summerby was also sold that season as well, or at the end of that season. But of course, famously, Lee came back to Main Road with Derby uh, and scored in a 2-1 win. And we got that kind of legendary bit of commentary from Barry Davis. Look at his face. Just look at his face. <laughs> uh, and even the City fans actually were cheering, if I remember rightly, at that point. So, um, but, you know, again, we're building for the future. So Asa Hartford came in pre-season. Asa Hartford already had a big reputation and he should have gone to Leeds, but they detected some sort of heart defect uh, and called the transfer yeah. off. But there was yeah, nothing wrong with heart, Asa Hartford's it? heart. Yeah. Supposedly, mm. nothing wrong with Asa Hartford's heart. Big, big player for us. Um, Joe Royal came in the January, you know, who, who scored some useful goals. And the interesting thing that we finished eighth that season, but if you look at our, our away record was abysmal. And if you look at our away record, in isolation, if you did a league table based on away results only, we were second bottom. We only won two games away from home. Uh, one was an early one against Spurs in August. And the only other win was, uh, I think, our last away game, our last but one away game against Chelsea in April 75. Had we had the same sort of record as the other top teams had got away from home, we'd have probably won the league that season. But we ended up eighth. So it was mm -hmm. quite, um, you know, it, it was quite... Um, 
bizarre season. Well, it was a season of a lot of changes, really, wasn't it? Well, well, yeah, in some way. But even the clubs, that, there were three clubs that got relegated that season were, were Luton, Carlisle, and believe it or not, Chelsea. And they all had better away records than we did. Mm. And it was quite, quite bizarre. That, but you could see, you know, we had the nucleus there of a very good team, but maybe we were too open away from home. I, I, I'm not quite sure. But say two wins are the second worst away record. Uh, in in the whole league, um, cost us a decent tilt at the title. Yeah. So that was a bit a bit disappointed in that season. But you could, the home record was the second best in the division. So so you know you could see what we were building towards, and we were doing the right thing. Instead of buying in a lot of very questionable players at high fees, we were getting in very making very selective buys of very good players who were strengthening the squad. Good, good period for us, really. I mean, '76, of course, was a League Cup win. Yeah. So, so looking at the '75-'76 season again, it was another big buy. Dave Watson uh, was the key player who came in. Another fantastic choice. <laughs> Funny enough, it paralleled um, Liverpool raiding Southampton. We were we were raiding Sunderland. Sunderland. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we got Dennis Stewart and, and and Mickey Horswell, and then we got Dave Watson from Sunderland. Might be someone else. Joe Corrigan was finding his feet. So so Joe Corrigan was coming in as, as first choice. So if you look at the 75-76 squad, which was remarkably consistent, uh, Kenny Clements took over the right-back spot, who you know, was a great right-back for us. So, so our first choice 11 was Joe Corrigan, Kenny Clements, Willie Donnelly, brilliant, consistent left-back, Mike Doyle, Dave Watson, Alan Oakes, Asa Hartford, Peter Barnes made his proper breakthrough. Colin Bell obviously started that season. Uh, Tommy Tommy Booth was playing. Dennis Stewart, Joe Royal, um, Rodney Marsh was. Uh, it was Rodney Marsh's final season. So we really had a fantastic team. That that seventy five seventy six season. Uh, you know all these youngsters: uh, Paul Power, Jed Keegan, Gary Owen, all starting to break through. And then um, December, yeah, we we were running really well. Um, December seventy six, of course, was the the crucial moment where we we'd gone through two rounds of the League Cup. And, and the first round was actually the second round, as, as it was, was pretty typical City. Uh, we had two draws against Norwich. We drawn against Norwich. We had two draws. So, and, and they played in those days. The cup competitions were as many replays as you needed to settle it. So I think we were home the first leg. We were away the second leg. We drew both of those. Went to a third replay, which I think was at a neutral ground. And we won 6-1. So we had two draws and we beat Norwich 6-1 in the second replay. We got past Nottingham Forest in the third round, and in the fourth round we drew. We were drawn at Main Road against United, and um, I mean this was a fantastic game. It had a bit of everything. We scored. We went two 0 up very early on, and then of course Colin Bell was um, critically injured. After Martin Buchan, wasn't Martin Buchan. Martin Buchan. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he was just about to score as well, and Buchan put in this last ditch tackle and just caught Bell on his standing leg as he was about to shoot. Uh, uh, we, we, our season tickets then were in the North Stand. But actually, we'd taken, um, taken a friend along from, from, I was back in Manchester at this point, university, Manchester Met, and one of my pals came along. So we needed an extra ticket. So, um, we got tickets in the, in the plot lane. So we were right in front of that, unusually. Uh, and Steve, the guy I took, he was his first, he was actually a Bournemouth fan. He lived just around the corner from the Bournemouth stadium, um, in those days. And uh, he was just blown away by the, the whole atmosphere of a derby and the excitement of a 4-0 win. And of course, we didn't really realize how bad Colin Bell's injury was at the time, but it looked, it was in those days where players played on with broken legs, uh, virtually. So you knew if someone went off on a stretcher, it, it was pretty bad. But we didn't know 
quite know how bad it was at that point. But so you think, oh, yeah, he might be out for three or four weeks. I mean, there were two great things about that. And funny enough, I was with Tommy Booth just over a week ago. He was appearing at my local supporters club branch. And Tommy's a very, very funny character. And I asked him the question because basically Tommy Booth stepped into that midfield spot and he proved himself very, very adept. In fact, in fact he stepped in as an emergency centre forward. Uh, we played Sheffield United away and um, something happened. I don't know what, what happened. We were short of a centre forward. and Tommy Booth went up front and scored. And then he, tr- he took the number eight shirt for the rest of the season. And he was absolutely fantastic. And I asked Tommy at the meeting, I said, um, you know, Tommy, looking at this Pep Guardiola side, you were a bit of a footballer. You know, you could play in different positions. Would you fancy your chances in this team? He said, no, I'm bloody 69. <laughs> <laughs> but but Tommy Booth was, would have been a Pep footballer. You know, you could put a dead solid centre half. You could put him in midfield. You could put him up front. Pep would have loved Tommy Booth in his day. And also, in some ways, I think, if, if I remember rightly, Asa Hartford, uh, David may may have a view on this. Asa Hartford was very much in the shadow of Colin Bell. And what, perhaps the one good thing that did come out of Colin Bell's injury, if you could say that, was that Hartford came out of the shadows and really yeah. imposed himself on that team. And he was a fantastic player. Well, Colin, Colin was, was an exception to I mean, he, because he was, every, I mean, the, you hear it now, the ultimate box-to-box player. And that was Colin. I mean, he, he could run and run and run. And a lot of t- players would be overshadowed by that sort of skill. I mean, it, you didn't take the ball off him. He lent it to you. From time to time, yeah, he was uh, he was uh, he was given the nickname Nijinsky, wasn't he, after the race? Yeah, yeah, no. that was, the, was Malcolm Allison did that. Yeah, no, he, he was. I mean, still, I mean, seeing some David Silver is the closest player I've seen to, and it's a, he's a different type of. But that's the, for that domination of a of in a in a role is the closest I've seen since Colin. But you know, he, he pop up in you know suddenly there he is. Just and it, the, the, he had as much energy in the ninetieth minute as he had in the first minute. It was a real sorry state at first because he never ever came back. And he's, he's such. I mean, he's never sought the limelight. He's a very quiet, private guy. Um, but out on that field, he was exceptional. He wasn't. Well, he wasn't much one for goal celebrations either, was he? Uh, he just he just jogged back. And, and in fact, the only time that I've seen him give any kind of a sort of a, a celebratory gesture was the, the, the well watching the goal by Dennis Law as uh, Colin Bell who comes up and and uh, pats his face and and tries to uh, encourage him to celebrate a little bit but he wasn't really having any of it and that was quite ironic because Colin Bell himself didn't do goal celebrations well again that's the, that's the nature of the guy he is a very very quiet reserved chap you know he, I know he's involved behind the scenes at the club, but probably many times you, you wouldn't know he's there. You know, he's not, he doesn't come up to you. He's, he, he's a private individual, a very private man, and yeah, that's the way yeah. he wants to live his life, and so be it. I have been so, privileged to meet him and have a chat, and yeah, he's a very quiet, doesn't boast. Mm-hmm. Tommy Boo's a bit of a Jack the Lad, he's got a story for every occasion. Mike Summerby can talk for England, you know, they're all... But, but you know, Colin Bell is, uh, you know, I wouldn't say he was monosyllabic, but he's just a, a very quiet, self-contained... And, and actually, someone told me the story. Mike Summerby told me the story. Um, back in the 60s, it would have been, late 60s, Joe Mercer, Malcolm Allison days, Mike was a customer of my mum's kind of cafe and restaurant. If, he, if, if I was off, off school on holiday, I'd go in and help. He'd perhaps come in for a late lunch, and if he was on his own, he'd say, oh, come and have lunch with me. So I'd sit there and we'd chat. 
I remember asking him once about Malcolm Allison, what makes Al- Malcolm so special as a coach? And, you know, funny, we talked about his lack of man management skills. But what Mike said was he knows, he said he's a great psychologist. He knows how to get the best out of each player, which as a coach working with the players on a day to day basis that w- was a great thing. And he said, you know, Neil Young needs an arm around the shoulder. He said, I need bringing down to earth a peg or two, um, you know, when I'm getting a bit full of myself and, and not focusing on the game. And Colin Bell was was my hero, still was. And I said, well, well, Colin Bell, how does he deal with Colin Bell? He said, doesn't need to. He's completely self-motivated. And, and that was Colin Bell. So, I mean, that's what well, we lost. The, the title 70. of his autobiography says it all. The reluctant, reluctant hero. hero. Yeah, yeah. So, so that was that was what we lost in Colin Bell that season. And Peter Swales always reckons, and, and, and this certainly isn't one of his more dubious claims that that Colin Bell cost us that the loss of Colin Bell cost us titles. Yeah. We won the, I mean, I think we're, we're getting to the edge of the time we need to spend on this. But obviously, we did win the League Cup that season. That fabulous overhead um, kick goal at Wembley from, from Dennis Stewart and that was Peter Swales's first and well only trophy as a as chairman but again he must have thought things were looking despite the loss of Colin Bell things were looking good we had a really really good team you know Asa Hartford had taken over from Colin Bell you can never really take over from Colin Bell but Asa Hartford Tommy Boo they both stepped into the breach brilliantly in fact, after we won that League Cup final, the game after we played Sheffield United at home, we won 4-0. And if I remember rightly, Tommy Booth assisted all four goals. So, you know, that was how good he was as a footballer. So, you know, although you always miss a player like Colin Bell, we, we had replaced, you know, we, we sort of replaced him. 76-77 was the season we absolutely should have won the title. And again, it was... Another of those great buys, Brian Kidd. You know, instead of going out and buying a load of players, as we did in later years, uh, we bought Brian Kidd, a proven goal scorer, an absolute warrior. You know, Brian Kidd was almost the Carlos Tevez of his day. You know, where the action was heaviest, you'd find Brian Kidd going in with his head and and all sorts. And we, we finished that season a point behind Liverpool, but we really should have won the title that season. One reason is, well, we had we drew to Liverpool at home at Main Road, and it was one all, and their goal was a mix-up between Dave Watson and Joe Corrigan. And I always remember Dave, uh, Joe Corrigan saying about Dave Watson, he was the centre-half that completed the picture, because he was, Dave Watson did things that Joe Corrigan would normally do. So, you know, Joe Corrigan would normally, because he had a bit of a torrid time, and Joe Corrigan's indecision whether to come out, whether to stay. Dave Watson did all that for him. So, mm-hmm. so Joe could basically stay in his six-yard box and let Dave Watson do it all. So Dave was a huge – Dave Watson was a huge presence for us. But unfortunately, him and Joe Corrigan, probably for the only time, got involved in a bit of a misunderstanding. We drew with Liverpool one all. We lost the title to Liverpool by a point, of course. So if we'd hung on for the win. But we, we also had um, three nil-nil home draws early in the season to – yeah, Stoke, QPR and Newcastle are teams you would normally expect us to be. So so again, that was I think it was two two points for a win. But again, that's that was three points dropped. And any two of those would have won us the title. But again, you know, everything's looking so good. You know, we've got the, this nucleus of this really, really good team. Yeah, again, experience, there's goals in the team. We can you've got people like Dennis Stewart who can beat men, Peter Barnes. You've got a solid back four. You've got a great midfield, even though you've not got Colin Bell. Everything looks so rosy, which is probably why you didn't hear a lot from Peter Swales in those days. That kind of takes us to the 77-78 season, uh, when I think we were expecting big things. But in some ways, things started to go wrong that season. Um, and perhaps we'll, we should cut it off here yep, yep, yep. and start from there for the next part. Well, we'll stop here and we'll uh, we'll just express our gratitude and say cheerio for now. First of all, to Colin Savage. Thank you so much, Colin. It's a pleasure. Just about my voice is just about lasted out, so I can go and 
have a drink now or watch the three o'clock kickoffs and go to the pub to watch the Chelsea game. Absolutely. And also we're gonna thank so much David Gregory. David, we've done we've done well. We've got the first part down. Thank you very much for, for coming along with us. No, I'll have to do a bit more homework before the next leg. <laughs> yeah, yeah oh. me too. Okay, guys, so we'll stop there and uh, please join us for part two on the Bolt from the Blue podcast of this fantastic and enthralling look back at the uh, Peter Swales era. So until then, have one on us and up the blues. Well,